From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sense of fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. Now, is it too late to apologise? No doubt Boris Johnson has agonised over that question as pressure mounts on the Prime Minister to own up to a rule-breaking drinks party in Downing Street. One Conservative MP describes the mood among colleagues as sulphurous while predicting that Johnson will survive because he's prepared to brazen it out. That's even as two surveys yesterday suggested a majority of voters now think he should resign. Even Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross went on the record saying that Johnson should go if he broke Covid rules or misled Parliament. Johnson is facing what could perhaps be the most pivotal Prime Minister's question of his career. Well, as that uh, storm swirls, another is brewing on the backbenches. Politico reports that serial rebel Anne-Marie Morris, a recent guest on Bloomberg Westminster, has had the Conservative whip removed after she voted for Labour's motion proposing a VAT cut on energy bills. Well, plenty of drama at Westminster, but in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, there is still the big challenge of how best to handle the coronavirus. Let's discuss today's big issues with Ben Lake, Plaid Cymru MP for Ceredigion in Wales. Ben, thanks so much for joining us on the, the programme again. If Boris Johnson says sorry, issues a mere culpa, is, is that enough? Can we move on? I think if he had, um, in the first instance, apologised right at the very beginning, uh, owned up before he was caught out, then perhaps we would have a different discussion and conversation. But now that um, things have, have developed as they have done, we've got so many now um, alleged parties, gatherings, business meetings, whatever they're called, um, at a time when the vast majority of people in the country were having to follow um, COVID rules. Um, and let's, let's not forget, you know, these COVID rules had a great impact on people's lives. It, it meant that um, pregnant mothers were having to give birth um, on their own. It meant that elderly relatives weren't able to, to see each other. It meant that actually people weren't able to, to go to, to the funerals of loved ones. And, you know, these rules were incredibly serious. And we were told um, by those in government, those effectively making the decisions, that they were necessary um, to, in order for us to fight the pandemic. People across the country follow them. And yet now we are told, or at least it has been alleged, that um, those very people who are making these decisions were flagrantly um, ignoring them and, and hosting um, gatherings, business parties, whatever you want to call them, um, at, at, in 10 Downing Street. That is quite an outrageous um, betrayal of trust um, and also a betrayal of leadership. Um, and I'm perhaps a little bit old-fashioned, but I expect prime ministers of whatever political creed um, to try and lead by example. Clearly, there's not going to be a general election anytime soon. Boris Johnson has a big majority. What's your sense as to whether uh, he will survive, whether he's going to see out the end of 
2022? <laughs> well, I, I think that is the, the question of the day, Ewan. Um, uh, part of me thinks that um, uh, the controversies that have come to light again now after Christmas are the ones that um, the revelations before Christmas about the different parties, um, you know, it does make it look very, very difficult for the Prime Minister to hang on, especially if you have uh, Conservative backbenchers um, and, well, Conservative members across the country starting to question um, his leadership. Um, certainly, if, if I were Prime Minister and if I had uh, broken my own rules in, in the way that uh, it is alleged that Paul Johnson has done, um, I certainly would have to resign. I, uh, the shame would be too much. Um, but having said that, you know, I think it's been sp- uh, said elsewhere that uh, Boris Johnson you know, is looking to, to sit this one out and weather the storm. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps with a bit of a, a realist hat on now, um, he has perhaps weathered similar storms in the past and maybe we shouldn't write him off. But certainly, if, if the question is, should he resign, um, if he's broken these rules, yes, without a doubt. Whether he will, of course, is, is uh, another matter. That's another matter, yeah. I want to talk to you about the ongoing COVID situation. Now, the government at Westminster made a tough call not to impose significant extra restrictions at Christmas. Wales and Scotland did impose more restrictions, uh, making people's uh, run-up to Christmas a bit less festive than it would otherwise have been, putting more restrictions on people's lives. It looks like Westminster made the right call and Cardiff made the wrong call. Well, I think it's still um, a little bit too early to say because I know that having had meetings with local health boards and trusts, you know, they're very concerned about the levels of um, staff vacancies um, towards the end of the month. Um, and sadly, we've seen um, public services, whether it's uh, refuse collection, you name it, um, also suffering from a high level of sickness absence. So I'm, I'm not sure yet whether we can yet say whether the Port of Westminster was the, the right one or the wrong one, and likewise. Um, the approach by the Welsh government is right or wrong one. We will know in the fullness of time, of course, but I'm not sure we're at that point yet. Um, but as for you know, the, um, the, the regulations and some of the restrictions, I think one uh, judgment or criticism that is a fair one um, of the Welsh government's approach is perhaps questions of the inconsistencies of some of the rules. Um, I think that's certainly something that constituents of mine have, have raised with me, that um, you were unable to, to go and support your local football or rugby club um, in an outside setting, but you could go into a pub and watch you know, your Premier League uh, indoors with countless many other people. Um, you know, that sort of inconsistency, I think, is, has certainly raised a lot of questions and is difficult to, to explain and justify. And so um, on that measure, certainly, I think the judgment is, is, uh, is justified. Yeah, on that inconsistency, as you put it, quite a lot of fiddly rules from uh, the Welsh government. Uh, I know there was a bit of uh, furore over the park run uh, getting cancelled. That means people can't go for a run in the park, an organised run in the park, because it is more than 50 people all outdoors, uh, pretty safe from a COVID point of view. Do you think that the government uh, has issued too many diktats? I think the, the, the regulations when it came to outside sports certainly needed to have been reconsidered, and I don't think they were um, justified. You know, we, we understand perhaps more now than we did two years ago the importance of, of our general well-being, uh, mental well-being, physical well-being, and, and um, sports and exercise can make an invaluable contribution uh, to maintain a good sense of well-being. Now, when we have a situation now in Wales where, you know, in a, in a given park or an area, you may have of a, a typical Saturday, um, you know, 50 to 100 people running there independently of each other. Um, but 
those same 50, 200 people couldn't run in the same event. Um, so, you know, it's inconsistent and, and it is difficult for people to understand because when you do have a situation where we are still allowed to um, attend hospitality, albeit in, in, with certain restrictions, but you're still able to, to attend hospitality, you're still able to watch a, you know, a televised kind of marathon, if you wanted to, from, from the pub um, in an indoor setting. That's where I think um, some of the, the most recent restrictions have fallen um, short and, and it's difficult for some people to understand. Um, and I have to say that when it comes to outdoor exercise, especially on a community level, I do think the Welsh Government um, need to, to rethink quite urgently because the impact that um, the restrictions are having um, on, yes, the ability of people to exercise, yes, people to, to socialise in a safe way um, is quite harmful. And mm. having been told for the best part of 18 months, certainly, that um, outdoor events and outdoor socialising is far more safe um, for us in terms of COVID than indoor socialising. It doesn't really stack up then that you have uh-huh. the ability to go to the pub but not to go for a run in the park. So an urgent rethink. Uh, the Six Nations Rugby Tournament, very important for the Cardiff economy. What do you want to see on that front? Uh, well, first and foremost, I think we need um, an early decision. Um I can't begin to imagine the logistical uh, difficulties of trying to organise an event like uh, Six Nations. Um, so at the very least, uh, the organisers and the, the World Rugby Union need to have some clarity as soon as possible. Um, there needs to also be, if, if, the, if the World Government decides that um, such events are not um, possible, they need to explain to, to everybody that they have looked at all the alternative options. So, for example, is it a, an outright uh, restriction on, on all Fans, is it something that right seventy five percent capacity would be fine, or you know uh, full capacity with certain um, testing uh, requirements or what have you? Um, because undoubtedly the the Six Nations and, and uh, especially the, the home fixtures for Wales and Cardiff are, are a big big uh, boost to the economy. But also, I would also, I think just as importantly, it offers a bit of a boost uh, to the general spirit and well being because a lot of people in Wales. As you won't be surprised to, to hear, you know, follow the rugby mm. and um, Six Nations often does uh, offer a bit of a, a bright light for us in, in, in the middle of winter. Uh-huh. So um, I, I want to just. I want to just switch tacks to uh, energy bills. The rising cost of living, a big problem for lots of people. Do you think the Welsh government is doing enough to help people with rising bills? There, there are certainly some measures that the Welsh government are taking. I know that they have uh, extended some support. Um, uh, fuel bills for those who are um, on pension credits and answered in um, uh, universal credit, for example, um, and that's to be welcomed. Ultimately, though, what we need to be seeing is, is in, the, in the short term, action and measures that can only really be taken by the UK government. Um, we had a debate yesterday, of course, on, on the question of uh, temporary suspension of VAT on, on fuel bills. I think that while it's certainly not something for the long term, in the immediate term, when constituencies such as Kennedy Young look to to see their bills um, re- um, rise by about eight hundred pounds a year, um, you know that sort of radical short-term measure, I think, is justified and necessary. Whilst looking into the longer term, and that's where Welsh government and the UK government need to, to work together on things such as better fuel efficiency um, for, for domestic properties, incentives for people to to look at insulation measures and what have you where possible, and also. We need to, you know, not perhaps uh, shy away from the fact that we do need to, to look at our um, energy market. And one of the things that I personally think there's a lot more that can be done um, is local uh, community energy uh, supply.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. More than 3 million Britons missed work in the first week of this year amid the rapid spice of Omicron. According to Good Shape, which tracks work-related illness and well-being at UK employers, new absences increased by 18% to an estimated 1.6 million between January 3rd and 9th, compared to the same period last year. The snapshots of absences is one of the first indications of the impact of the Omicron surge on the UK economy. So is the UK reaching its Omicron peak? The number of cases confirmed over the past seven days is 13% down on the previous week. Professor Kevin Fenton, Public Health's England Director for London, says that officials are starting to see a decrease in COVID prevalence across the capital. But how reliable are those figures, considering people are struggling to get their hands on tests in some cases, and in England the data exclude those who are reinfected? And can the UK realistically say it's moving to an endemic stage of the virus as the government suggests. To answer these questions, I'm joined now by star statistician David Spiegelhalter. He's chair of the Winton Centre at the University of Cambridge and co-author of COVID by Numbers. David, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the programme today. Let's start with the current situation. How confident can we be that we're past the peak with Omicron? Oh, I, I never like being confident about anything to do with numbers, but it really does look like um, we're certainly in a stable situation. We can say that, um, but we because we do have this other source of information, the ONS survey, um, which should give reliable figures for um, those who might not even know they've been infected, and that suggests that they, you know in London anyway they were peaking even before the new year. So I think we can be confident that we have. Um, you know, we're in a stable state. Uh, it appears to be going down in some areas in, 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 of England, not in others. Um, but uh, it looks like we definitely, I think, have prevented um, the, the worst uh, sort of situations that had been envisaged by some. And in terms of the numbers in uh, hospital, how does that compare to uh, earlier in the pandemic? And there are signs that people are staying for less time and not needing such intensive care in hospital. Yes, I mean, cases are much higher than they've ever been. Uh, definitely, we've probably, probably got up to about half a million people a day getting infected in the country. Um, but hospitalizations, again, which seem to be stable, if not coming down in London, um, are, are you know, around half the level they've been in previous, um, you know, previous waves. And so um, we've been uh, very fortunate like that. And if we look at more severe outcomes, uh, no increase whatsoever in, in use of mechanical ventilators, intensive care, it's going to increase a little bit, and deaths are going up a bit, but are still, you know, nothing like the sort of way in which they they increased in the past. And now that we've got more data, how does Omicron compare with uh, previous strains? We, we're pretty certain that it is. Well, it's obvious that it is less uh, severe. But in terms uh, of deaths, can you can you put some sort of more concrete uh, percentages on that? Yeah, we haven't got good data on the protection against mortality, but we've got good data on the protection against um, 
for Omicron of booster vaccines, for example, against um, hospitalisation, is nearly 90%. So it's going to be substantially higher than that for um, for, hospital, for deaths and intensive care. And, and, and you know, booster rates are good among the most vulnerable population, the over 60s. And so um, I think, you know, without the boosters, um, we would be in a, a really, really serious situation. Because although Omicron is, is intrinsically milder, um, it is so much more infectious and it spreads so rapidly through the population that um, we have been uh, rescued by, by the boosters. Can we say, uh, if we didn't have the boosters, can we, can we say, uh, if Omicron was spreading amongst the population uh, not boosted, can we say what hospitalisation rates would look like, roughly? Oh, God, I, I, I wouldn't try to guess, but it would, be, it, would be, it would be really rough because, you know, even if um, the, uh, it's milder, the, the, uh, the most optimistic people have suggested might be a third of the hospitalisation risk intrinsically to the virus, um, you only need three times as many cases and what we've had um, to to overcome any previous waves. And so I think that um, you know, we've been saved by, and not just the vaccination programme, by the booster programme is what we've been relying on. This big phrase, the transition to uh, endemic, can you just sort of compare where we're at now with Omicron with perhaps uh, a bad flu uh, wave, uh, a bad winter f- flu wave? Yeah, that's interesting because this, when we look back on this winter, it may very well look like, you know, in terms of excess deaths, whatever, like a, a fairly bad flu year. Um, I mean, one of the good things, because we're not getting any flu this year, and we've got almost none last year, um, because the measures we're taking are enough, it looks like, to, to control flu, which is, you know, pathetically infectious compared with, with, um, with uh, Omicron. And so... Um, I think that I'm not going to say how what we're going to have to slide, you know, how we're going to live in the future. That's not my job, and I don't, you know what, what being endemic even means. But um, I think if we look at the stats, uh, this is not looking. This winter is not looking like an outlier in terms of, of deaths. Mm, that's interesting. Now, how happy are you with the? deaths within 28 days number it's quoted very precisely on the uh, the tv news uh, every yeah. night but uh, ha- how how meaningful is it oh god it drives me mental you know there were people you know or people who should know better saying today oh look 379 people died of covid yesterday no you know this is the number reported tuesdays is always high it was only 77 on monday and so this number must be taken with a huge pinch of salt. If you average it over seven days, then it does give a, a, a picture of what's going on. But to get an idea of what's really happening, we have to wait 10 days or so and look at the, you know, the death registrations. And we know those, those are the much better figures. The daily figures are useful. I'm glad we get them. I look at them every day. But after nearly two years, I have learned not to take any notice of the surge on Tuesday. But some people still <laughs> apparently get amazed by it. And are you happy with the way that it's calculated, this, this, this 28 days uh, device? Because clearly if you get hit by a, a bus and you have COVID, then you're counted. Yeah, and also you're not counted if you live more than 28 mm. days. And so it, there's winners and losers there. There's a 60-day, I remember when they changed it, I argued for the 60-day definition, which is still there but never quoted. Um, there's no correct figure. There's no absolute definition of what a COVID death is. Um, as I said, these daily numbers are useful to give a, a picture of what's happening. Similarly, with the case numbers, we know that that depends on who happens to go and get tested and so on. 
and even availability of the tests. And so all these numbers need, need to be taken with great caution. And, it's, and the people who work in this area for a long time, you know, have got to know this. I try to communicate it. But, um, you know, still there's a lot of misclaims and I think misinformation based on these daily figures. In the end, I think it is good to have a daily figure. I think we deserve it. You know, I like to log on at four o'clock and see these new numbers. Um, the public is, is very well served by the data provided by, by the agencies in this country. But, um, you know, those who commentate... I think should be uh, careful and should know what they're talking about. You go into some more detail on this in your book, COVID by numbers. What are some of the other stats that you're uh, un- unhappy with? Uh, do you think we're being uh, particularly misled on any of the other numbers? I wouldn't say misled. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, as I said, there's, there's, there's reasons for numbers. There's a reason to have some things quickly, in a way, sort of quick and dirty numbers. And that while we wait for the better ones to come along, um, always, you know, test and trace statistics. I've always been a bit dubious about the whole program, I think, has really deserves a, a, a massive amount more scrutiny to see, you know, actually, you know, what it's actually achieving. And I'm sure this will be one of the big points of discussion as we go forward this year. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, again, it's not the numbers that are intrinsically bad a lot of the time. It's how people... Um, talk about them and how they misuse them. And uh, this being Bloomberg, I have to ask you about the economy. What's uh, what do you say uh, overall has been the effect on on the UK economy? Perhaps it's a little bit early to say. I've absolutely no idea. Not my job. I'm a statistician and I tend to work on medical areas. I'm absolutely clueless about the economy. <laughs> and just talk to us a little bit about the vaccines and uh, the, the risks and benefits of, of vaccines. Yeah, I mean, it is um, it is tricky. I mean, there are risks from the vaccine. We, we know there always are. There always are. Um, they, uh, and they need to be taken into account, and they need to be communicated to people um, in a clear and honest way. There are, there are positives and, 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 and negatives. Um, for most people, um, you know, the benefits hugely outweigh the, uh, the, the negatives. But, you know, as the committee that decides these things, when they look into in a sense, the benefits and harms for the individual themselves, for some groups, is much more finely balanced. For example, children or other low-risk groups. But I think it's very important to realise that vaccines are different from perhaps taking a statin or something like that. We're not doing it just for ourselves. Um, when, we, when, we take, when we take vaccines, we're doing it as much for the sake of society. And if you decide not to have a vaccine... Um, I think you should be thinking because, oh, I don't need it, I don't feel I need it. You have to think, well, you know, if everyone thought that way, uh, we'd be in a state of complete catastrophe. Uh, you're relying on people around you to protect you. You're, you're raising the risk for everyone around you, particularly the vulnerable people. And if you do get ill, you're using up NHS resources unnecessarily. But as I said, it's your choice. And I, you know, I don't think I'm actually not a fan of people being compelled to take it. But um, I think people should really realise that this is not just a matter for individual decisions. For, for, you know, individual what's good and bad for me alone. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.